20, Proverbs 22, the 22nd chapter in the first verse. I was, uh, today was a eventful day, I think, for many of us. And uh, I began to, uh, I've been close to three months at the, uh, at the new place that I work, which is uh, Pinnacle Treatment Centers in, in Martinsville. Uh, recovery works. It's a brand new facility. It's beautiful. Um, how small the world is, as I, I believe Collins flooring actually did the floor, the floors there. Um, John, I was talking to him about where I worked and he was like, oh yeah, I think we did the flooring there. So it's a beautiful facility. And I was there um, a month before there was any patients. And so in three months, what is amazing to me is almost everyone in the building, everyone knows their reputation. We know which nurses are easy to work with and those that are difficult. Uh, we know um, the leadership, how they work. Uh, they know which therapists will come and help and are supportive, and we know which ones are not. It generally takes uh, a new patient probably, depends on if they're detoxing. So if they're detoxing, that first week is generally really rough, and a lot of times they don't even come out of the room. But within a couple of days, uh, patients will know who's a good therapist to go to, who's the good uh, residential aides, who's a good nurse. Uh, people know and gravitate towards individuals they feel will treat them right. It's just simple. And so as I begin to think about that, it uh, uh, put a unction in me to talk tonight uh, to you about a, a particular topic. And if we go to Proverbs 22 and 1, it says, A good name is more desirable than great wealth. Respect is better than silver, silver or gold. And in the King James, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. And I have a quote for you that I thought was um, really good. It was, it's by George Washington. And it says, a reputation once broken may possibly be repaired, but the world will always keep their eyes on the spot where the crack is. George Washington. Let me read that again. A reputation once broken may possibly be repaired, but the world will always keep their eyes on the spot where the crack was. It's Warren Buffett said it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy it. If you think about that, I think we'll all try to do things better. It takes 20 years to build your reputation and five minutes of poor decision making you can tear that whole thing down. And if you're not careful, 
uh, before long, my little buddy gave me some um, helpful toys. Um, you know, if you can't make friends with a little child, then you need to re-examine your salvation. Because the Bible tells us that, as, at, that we should become like little children. Uh, you know how to become like a little child? Let me teach you a few things about psychology that are very simple. When you're talking to a child, don't talk to him like this. If your knees allow it, find a chair. If they don't, get down on their level and just talk to them. Um, I think a lot of people are afraid um, when children pray in the altar because they, you know, I think sometimes we're afraid we're going to break them or we're going to say the wrong thing. But little children are so simple. Uh, there was there was a, uh, a young man that was praying up here, I believe it was Sunday, and um, I was encouraging. He wasn't saying anything. And so I encouraged him. I said, say words out loud. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I had to look really close. He was saying it, but his mouth was barely moving. That's good enough. Jesus heard it. The second thing I said, just tell him that you're sorry. And as soon as the words went out of his mouth, tears, his face just puffed up and his tears rolled down his eyes. And the Holy Ghost was all over him. And it's like when you build a reputation with a child, you can build it in an instant or destroy it in a second. And sometimes it's very difficult to rebuild our reputation. So tonight I want to talk to you about our reputation. The Bible is clear that Proverbs 10, 6 through 7 says, Blessings crown the head of the righteous but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. The name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. I've heard lots of things over the last 50-some years. I got the Holy Ghost when I was five years old. And uh, so I've been trying to live for God my whole life with varying levels of success. If anybody's been around for a while, you know what that means. You have your ups and your downs. Times I've sat on a pew and I've been as cold as toast. And there are times that I've been just firing off all eight cylinders and then everything in between. But God has been patient uh, with all of us. And tonight, I, I hope I leave in you a desire to expand your walk with God in such a way that you realize that it is important that you carry God's reputation in a meaningful and a accurate and a pure way. Otherwise, you'll destroy God's reputation. It's easy to look at this world. In fact, somebody was telling me the other day, I was, well, actually, I was overhearing a conversation about, you know, it's, it's, Christianity is just, it's been the root of all evil over the last couple of thousand years. Christians were responsible for the Crusades and so forth and so on. 
uh, the Catholic Church has done this or that and the other. And I didn't get involved in the conversation. But um, Christians didn't run the Crusades. There were people that called themselves Christians, but they were not true children of God. Because God does not espouse war. Now, you might say, well, the children of Israel went to war a lot. Well, it was to defend themselves or to take over places that God had promised them where there was evil that was abounding. Any place that was willing to repent and do the right things by God's word, God had mercy. So God doesn't want us to be at war. He doesn't want uh, bloodshed, but that has been um, prevalent over the, the centuries because people use the name of God to um, to bully people using a bully pulpit, uh, some may say, to get people to do according to their will. And it's important that we realize today that people are watching us. We're getting ready to move into a new building that is even more um, visible to this town. Uh, we're getting closer to the intersection. Uh, most people in this area know where the library was, and they're going to walk, uh, they're going to drive by there and see the sign of Breaking Bread Apostolic Church. Then that sounds wonderful. And they're going to see that sign on a beautiful building, and they're going to wonder about us. People are going to ask about us. People are going to um, inquire about who we are. Now, some people walk in here uh, just by chance, but many people that we see that come here uh, week after week are because they were invited by some of you who are about God's business. They wouldn't come here unless there was something they saw in you that attracted them to come. And once they get here, you better believe they're going to be watching. People are hypercritical of churches today because the church has been, wrongly so, the church has been targeted and tagged as this place that is judgmental, this place that is uh, harsh on people when that has not been my experience at all. Now, I have met harsh people in the church, but I currently work with harsh people. So we don't own the patent on harsh people and hypocrites. Those are just people. And because we are a cross-section of the community, we're going to attract those that are sick in their soul. We're going to attract people that are not fully engaged in this. But you know what? Every day someone walks in our door, we have people we have to we have to try to fire a horn under their carcass to get them out of their bed every day to work on their recovery and other people are running to uh, to their groups and to their therapists to get help. And it's like do we kick those people out that aren't doing anything or do we hope that with daily affirmation and daily encouragement that something will wake up in them, especially their peers, something will wake up in them and they will realize that they need to engage in their recovery. I tell Melissa all the time, working in addictions and working in the church is almost exactly the same. 
it's almost the same. Because every day I come to church, people are sitting on pews and we're trying to recover from sin. And since uh, Paul said, I, I would do good, but evil is present with me, and we don't believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved, I've been coming to my recovery, uh, my place of recovery since I was five years old, at least twice a week. And I will do so until I die, because you know what happens when I'm unfaithful and I quit coming to the house of the Lord? You don't build up this vast reserve of spiritual fortitude that allows you to just walk away and be independent the rest of your life. It doesn't work that way. What happens is when I break the good habits and the good um, things that I do to come to the house of God, to pray, to fast, to be a part of the kingdom of God, it keeps my self-will under control. Because if I don't keep my self-will under control by listening to the word of God and by coming to the house of God and submitting myself to my pastor, then that spirit of my self-will is going to grow pretty quickly. I can try to convince everybody in the world that I'll be fine, and maybe for a period of time that might be true. And I say might very hesitantly because I am a sinner. I still am a sinner. I'm just saved by grace. And I'm striving, as Ephesians says, for the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. I haven't hit it yet, but I'm striving for that. You know, we talk about that we are saved, and I understand the verbiage there, but saved sometimes I think we take extremely literal, but we are striving to be saved every day. Uh, there is a statement in recovery that we try to emphasize to individuals is you're not trying to be drug-free for the rest of your life. You're trying to be drug-free today. Don't make it bigger than what it is. Because think about this. What if someone would tell you to serve God, you have to make this commitment from now until God comes, you're not going to slip up, make a mistake, or fall and do something that's against God's word. That's a pretty big challenge. There's only one man that I'm aware of that did that. I know Enoch walked with God and was with God. I know Abraham was counted as a man of righteousness, but he still made errors and mistakes. And so I've got to be careful that I don't use the context of the word saved to put this false sense of security in myself that I forget to show up to the house of God or make everything else a priority. And I don't get myself here to get my strength from the king. Now, when we talk about a uh, reputation, um, this is going to be rough, and it's not my words. You guys ready for this? 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. I believe this is the NIV. It talks about an elder, the qualifications of an elder. You're like, well, I'm good there because I'm not an elder. Well, be careful, because the word elder he here means just uh, a lay leader. Uh, and there are there are potentially many elders in this church, and not all of them have to be in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. You could, uh, you could 
get on fire for God and you could uh, root yourself in, in several years and perform in the capacity of being an elder. But listen to this. So an elder must be a man, and that does not exclude women, but an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. Let's just stay there for a moment. What does above reproach mean? Open question. Anybody think they know what above reproach means? Anybody have a thought? What do you think above reproach means? Explain. The law is for the lawless. The law was not written to people that keep the law. You can look at it this way. Um, um, Locked doors are for honest people. They're not for thieves. A thief knows how to get into that door. But an honest person will pull on a door and it's locked. They have enough sense to say, oh, I can't get in there. I don't have the key to that. And so I don't have access. So I probably shouldn't be in there. But a thief is going to say that door means nothing to me. And so I'm going to find a way around it. And so to be above correction means that that you're above reproach, meaning that no one can look at your life and find areas that you need to be corrected. Say, Paul, that sounds like perfection. Like, no, it isn't. It's just somebody that's living a life as honest and as pure as they can. We are to step it up because guess what? Your lowest standard will be somebody's highest. That's why it's important to hold to God's word and the foundational principles of what God tells us is because our lowest will be the next convert's highest. Does that make sense? If you allow this, then that raises the bar to here. And then there, what what causes... I remember when I was growing up, it was like, how short is short? How long is long? People were in honest, uh, endless debates about that. And I've come to the conclusion... There's parts of that that don't really matter. Now, there's an extreme, obviously. But an inch below, two inch below, half in the knee, it's the spirit of the matter. It's the spirit of when I go out into this world, I want my life to represent God, my creator. A good way to think about holiness is whatever I've got on, people are going to be attracted to my face, not my body. Let me say that again. Holiness, the spirit of holiness says that people are going to look at my face instead of looking at my body. And so wearing clothing that, and that's not my topic tonight, but wearing clothing uh, that makes people look at other things, they're not going to see the glory of God in your face. And that's where people need to be looking because we should be ready always to give a testimony of the goodness of God. The testimony of God isn't looking at my behind. The testimony of God is looking at my face. And you hear me communicate the words of God. And so that's where we have to be so careful is that when we walk out of here, it not only involves our, our the way we look, but it also is our reputation. I work with a woman that we have um, 
text list that we update each other on all this. And this woman is one of the harshest women um, that I, that, not that I've met, but pretty harsh. And she uh, shows and she posts on our, on our uh, text chats scriptures all the time. Big fan. Love the word of God. But guess what it feels like when we get a scripture from her? What? What? Who said what? Yeah, it, it, it's there's something off about it. It's like you're sending the pure word of God, which is faithful and true and just, but yet your actions are harsh, and so it, they, the two don't match. And that's because the reputation doesn't match the word of God, which says that we are to live above reproach. That doesn't mean that we don't ever make a mistake, but we've got to be really careful because there are things that you can do, as George Washington said, people will forgive you for things, but they'll always look where the crack was. That's just honest human behavior. You say, well, people shouldn't judge. I agree. But if you've done such and such, that will leave a lingering effect in people's mind. They're capable of doing it again, and they're right. We are. Um, the Bible talks very clearly about uh, sins of the mind and sins of the body. Um, there are men that commit adultery in their mind, but they don't commit it in their body. They both need repentance, but one is different than the other. You've got to realize that once you cross a certain boundary, <clears throat> there are things that you can never take back. If you've got a thought that goes through your head, you can repent and move on and do better in God. But if you commit that act in your body, you've just destroyed potentially a reputation, uh, a family, a home, a marriage, and that can't be undone. Even that's why God gives an out for people that have been cheated on. Uh, and I speak speak from experience, is because there are sometimes those kind of wounds can't heal because you've been the trust that you had in that individual. It's not judgmentalism. It's if it happened, if it happened once, will it happen again? And it's hard to build a very intimate uh, relationship and a marriage with someone. Uh, that's why God was constantly telling the children of Israel that when they went uh, whoring after other gods, they were thrown into judgment by their very own actions and deeds. And for many, many years in the Old Testament, they continually fell into that until finally, at, at one point, the Bible talks about, and they offered no more idols after that point. And so that's where we have to be careful because once you do a thing, again, you've got to, Keep in mind, God's forgiveness is there, which is great. People's forgiveness is there, which is wonderful. But people will always look at where the crack was because you have violated the trust in them. So listen to this. So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control. Live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. 
he must be able to teach. Let me read that again. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation. He must enjoy have he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. There are over the years I have watched many young men and older men that aspire to the ministry. And that's a wonderful thing to aspire to if your motives are correct. If you have, and I have been behind a pulpit as an assistant pastor for about three years, and I hope I never get that role again. I'm willing, but that was a tough role to fill. A pastor's role is a tough role to fill. I wouldn't want to be here unless God called me, because you are the first person to get shot at. You're the target that people shoot at. You're the one that gets criticized the most. And if you don't have a tough, thick skin on your hide, you're going to fall pretty quickly because you've got to have what it takes to stand against the wiles of the devil. He is like a roaring lion, and he's trying to take down. If you can take down the leader, how do you win at chess? You checkmate the king. How do you win uh, in olden days? How do you win a country? Even today. Um, uh, the Russians were trying to, uh, what is it, Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. They, I think, I think that that's it. Uh, but they're trying to go for the capital. That's symbolic. If they take the capital, they, in effect, have morally demoralized that country in the fact that we have lost our capital. And they, in other words, have taken that country. So if God, if the, if the world, if the devil can bring down a leadership, not only in the pulpit, but what about the home? If he can bring down the leadership of the home, then he can destroy a home. Now listen to this. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his family well, having children who respect and obey him. If a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fail. Now, if you are listening to what I'm saying tonight and you aspire to a leadership position in this church, then what I just taught to you from word, the word of God is tough words to hear. Teacher, gentle, not quarrelsome, not love money. Gentleness and uh, people that quarrel and debate and pick. If every word out of your mouth is negative and you're picking this and that apart, then you're not fulfilling First uh, Timothy 3, 2 through 7. You're violating God's word on what it means to be a leader, not only in the church, but also in your home. The, uh, we know about the Ten Commandments. There's a commandment that we all know well. That is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I begin to study that 
several years ago, and I found something interesting. Now, I still don't believe that you should use words of deity and cuss words. But if you look at that scripture, the Bible says that it is without remedy, meaning it's unforgivable. So if you think about this, if it's unforgivable, many people that come to the house of the Lord have used a deity uh, word as a cuss word. So that doesn't make sense. Why would that be unforgivable when adultery and fornication and stealing can be forgiven? Because it's not what the scripture uh, is actually saying. If you look at uh, the Hebrew words there, it says, thou shalt not use. And what it's talking about there is when we use God's name for evil and we destroy God's reputation, it is without remedy. There is no forgiveness for that. So people that gripe about what Christians have done in the past, which they were not true children of God, those people are going to be judged in the harshest way because they used God's name for evil purposes, which is what that commandment is talking about. And again, it is not appropriate for us to use those words in language, but that's not what it's talking about. When somebody cusses and says that word that we all know what I'm talking about, that's not taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's when we take God's name and destroy his reputation by doing evil carnal works. It's without remedy. And so it's important for us to realize we are still under that. That if you are about town, about your family, about your business, and people know that you're a child of God, you better be careful. And I'm not the judge here. I don't know. But I know there's sinfulness and false steps and all those kind of things. But I would just caution you. You've got to be really careful because you're getting at least you're stepping toward that direction where if you on purpose don't give some things to God, like you're griping and you're complaining and you're backbiting and you're, uh, and I know this isn't a shouting message and it's not intended to be. This is something that will hopefully prick your heart and keep us saved. But if you walk around and you are not fulfilling God's word that's in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, are you destroying God's reputation? I would rather be cast into the sea, have a stone put around my neck, the Bible says, and, and offend one of these. But yet we have people that walk in day and day out, day in and day out, and they, they don't mind their manners, gentleness, apt to teach, not quarrelsome, not loving money, managing their own family well. Here, again, this is not me meddling in your business. This is saying if your checkbook's out of control and you can't stay on a budget and every month, uh, you try to got to try to figure out what you're going to pay, and you've got stuff overdue. You're out of First Timothy, uh, the third chapter. You're not fulfilling what God requires you to be. Live within your budget. Generally, people that don't live within their budget lack self-control. If you don't have self-control over your checkbook, 
then don't aspire to get behind a pulpit and try to lead other people. It's not going to work. What's going to happen is because of the fact that you do have some reproachable things in your life, you step behind this, you're going to get shot at. Remember the, the story in the New Testament where there were some disciples that weren't prayed up and ready, and they tried to cast a demon out of a, uh, out of a man, and they were tore up. They were beat up. And so if you want to be a target for sure, then get up here or get in front of people or aspire to a leadership position when you're not fulfilling what Timothy talks about and your reputation is soiled because you don't have yourself under control, you're setting yourself up to really take a beat. And God doesn't want you to go through that. But people are going to pick apart your message. I mean, look at what they did to some of the, the latest Supreme Court justices, and I believe these were good men and women. They were picked to shreds because this world doesn't aspire for truth anymore. This world, it's, it's either my way of thinking or there's no way of thinking. There's no, let's debate and find a middle ground. The only thing we do in this culture now on high-level views is we have to migrate toward one place and think one thing, and the, the, uh, the arena of ideas is dying. That is the spirit of the end time. The Bible says that it will make war with the saints. How will it make war with the saints? For years I've heard this debated, and now I think I know why. It's this attitude of wokeness. It's this attitude that I can say and do and be and act any way I want to and still profess to be a child of God, and I can hurt people and destroy people, and I can turn people against God's church and whatever, and I'm fine, and I keep on marching on with, with my own little ways and my own little testimony and my own little thing, and God is not pleased. I don't want to ever be counted as responsible for someone not missing an opportunity to live for God. And yes, I can tell you, I have missed many opportunities where I, I could have and I should have and I should have went places. But by the grace of God, I'm hoping that my life was never a place of reproach where people were like, I don't want what he has because if he's, if he's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. I thought about doing this, but I thought that eh, that probably wouldn't go over well. Um, we used to do this in a place that I worked. Is um, it was called 360 deg uh, degrees. Um, 360 degrees was the name of the program. And what you did is you handed out ten basically um, uh, surveys, and people anonymous, anonymously uh, rated your performance as an employee. And you could use that or not use it in your performance review. What if you did that as a child of God? If you handed out 10 reviews and asked people to rate you on, are you gentle? Are you not quarrelsome? Are you apt to teach? Do you take care of your family? Do your children listen to you? Can you manage your household? Are you faithful? Do you have self-control? What would your score be? Tonight, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable preaching this. 
teaching this because I'm doubly accountable for what I teach. I want to stand before God and be counted as faithful. I'd rather somebody stand up here with the word of God. Am I out of the word? Am I preaching out of his word? Am I, am I deviating from what God's word says? No. This is what the word says. We are to strive to be this way. You say, well, I don't meet all those, but I'm striving. Good for you. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But I tell you, you better quickly get your reputation good. And all that needs to take is that you just stop doing bad things and quit uh, trying to pull stuff over on people. Get your mouth under control. I was talking to um, um, uh, a patient today. We were talking about recovery. And they, they said, I thought recovery is when I never desire to drink again. And I said, no, that's not recovery. I said, now, the more you go into recovery over time, those things will lessen. But the rest of your life, you perhaps are going to crave and you're going to think about using your drug of choice. That's not the issue. The issue is whether you act on it or not. And so as I think about this in relationship to my walk with God, I still am tempted. Jesus was tempted in every manner, in every manner, but he did not sin. And so now as I strive to be more like Jesus uh, in my life, I have some self-control and some things that hit my life. I still have some of the temptations I had that I had when I was 20 years old and 30 years old. I just don't act on them anymore. That doesn't mean I'm a failure. That doesn't mean I haven't conquered it. Because listen to this. I want you to think about this statement. God doesn't heal behavior. He, he, he can heal our body. We can put his mind in us. But as Paul said, I would do good, which is a choice. We always have the choice to do good or to do bad. And once you've learned a bad behavior, that's always tucked in there. That's, that's what addiction's all about. You've learned how to use that drug of choice. You will always know how to use that drug of choice. I ask this question every time I have a whole new group of people, which takes about 20 days. People graduate, move on, or people leave because they don't want to go into recovery, and I'll have a whole new group. And I always ask this question. I've asked it for four years. How many of you went into your drug of choice purposely to lose your home, your family, destroy your liver, and destroy your life? No one's ever raised their hand. Most people, it's either from a doctor. The doctor didn't tell them how addicting um, benzodiazepines are didn't tell them how addictive opiates are. A lot of it is people like to socially drink or socially use, and they got caught in the web of an addiction. And so that wasn't the end result that they wanted. But one day they woke up and they couldn't lay it down. And I have watched people, they will walk over their grandmother to get their drug of choice. But when they go in recovery, that goes away. And they're good people because the drugs we have, we've created all this mess. The drugs we have today are so destructive to a human mind and human choice 
that people lose that ability and they need some help. And we're getting ready uh, to start a, a recovery program here. We've talked about it for months and it's not we've not been trying to delay it, but it's like we looked at this curriculum and that and I'm not um, I'm not in recovery. And so 12 steps needs to be run by somebody in recovery. But we found a curriculum that we can use that any of us can teach. And we're going to start it here soon because I believe every church that has the name of Jesus Christ in it should have a recovery program. Because we live in a world that's hyper addictive. Facebook was designed to addict you. Instagram was designed to addict you. TikTok was designed to addict you. Those six second videos and you scroll to the next one. Six seconds, you scroll to the next one. Say what they're funny. Okay. And then after two hours, what have you been doing for two hours looking at those funny videos? You've just wasted two hours of your life on stupid videos. And I have TikTok on my phone. I'm not, I'm not judging anybody. But I have to shut that thing down and realize I don't want to waste my time. And so it was designed to be addictive. There was a, a study that came out not too long ago that 7th um, seventh, uh, seventh through 10th grade girls' Instagram is destructive. Not harmful, destructive. So we're, we're dealing with stuff we don't have the mental capacity to deal with. We just need to get away from it. We just need to not mess with it. If you have other things in your life where you have lack of self-control, then I wouldn't put TikTok on your phone because after a while you're going to be, I, oh, Jesus, help me. I've watched people and their kids destroy the paint on the wall, but they're on their phone. Like, get off your phone and parent your children. I, I'm, I'm teaching the truth tonight. I'm not trying to be mean to you, but I'm saying you are the parent, not Facebook. And so get engaged in your, in your children's life. Be there in the moment. At the end of the day, when you're done with Facebook, do, do any of us need Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, uh, whatever? No. We would be fine without them. And I don't think there's innately anything wrong with having it on your phone. But if it's controlling you, get rid of it. Because Jesus is coming. As what little I know about prophecy, the thing I can tell you is that I'm struggling to see why we're still here. Because there are so many things in Scripture that have been fulfilled. It's just like, we're. what's the next thing to happen? The Bible talks about in the last days, good shall be counted as evil and evil shall be counted as good. Who would have ever thought that living Judeo-Christian values would be considered evil, Nazism, white supremacists, and all that kind of stuff? Who would have ever thought that would have been? But that's the categorization that people that are woke are starting to, you can't get in my bubble and tell me that I'm wrong because it makes me feel uncomfortable, and thus you are promoting hate. So the truth is no longer valued. It's what I think is true, and it's what keeps me safe because I don't want to be challenged out of my belief system. Uh, there's, a, there's a documentary. Uh, I 
think you have to be a part of, uh, have a uh, subscription to Wired, thedailywire.com, which is run by Ben Shapiro. He's a very conservative speaker, Jewish. And the title of this is, What is a Woman? Sounds like a simple question, doesn't it? What is a woman? I will give you the definition. It's an adult female that can produce children or has the capacity to, uh, or has the makeup, the organs to produce children. Simple question, right? In this video, pediatricians, psychologists, lawmakers, none of them can answer the question, what is a woman? Why? Because the devil wants to pervert the creation of God into something that is not in the image of God anymore. So you got to look back at the fundamental thing that's happening here is there is a devil that does not want the image of God on this earth any longer, and he's try trying to corrupt it in every way possible. Should we love everybody? Absolutely. I work with people that are in these categories, and I don't judge them. I don't talk about them. I don't, I don't look down on them. I treat them as human beings. But if you ask me if I believe what you believe, I'm going to tell you no. And I'm not afraid to say that. But I can still love them and support them as far as I want to have a good reputation. So tonight, I'm challenging you. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, 2, 2-7, through 7, and you quiz yourself, how well will you do? And I encourage you not to be discouraged by what the score may be, but let this provoke you. To, the Bible says we are to provoke each other to good works. And that's my intent tonight, not to throw, uh, and this is not a shouting thing, this is not an, even an amen thing, this is something to ponder on, is I want us to all be saved. And we, we got to look at the simple principles of God, which is to be gentle, peaceable. The last scripture I have for tonight is one of my favorite scriptures. And I quote it all the time. It's Galatians 2, 22 through 23. I'd like everybody to look this up on your phone or your Bible. Uh, I'd like you to look this up with me. How do, how will men know that you are my disciples? Now, this is not the scripture we're going to read, but how shall men know that you are my disciples? By your love, not for the world, but one to another. So if I can't love my brother, Paul, back there, if I can't love um, Brother Schultz, if I can't love Brother Kevin, if I can't love Brother Kevin, if I can't love you, then how can I love God who I have not seen? Say, well, they get under my skin. Yeah, people get under my skin too. But that doesn't mean I, I can't love them. I just keep that inside and, and deal with it. Not everybody is my cup of tea, and I'm not everybody's cup of tea either. That's all right. But we can respect and love one another and lift up one another. Galatians 2, or Galatians 5, 22 and 23. How do you know what kind of tree is in front of you? You know by the fruit. How do you know somebody is a child of God? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And does anybody know what against such things there is no law? What does that mean? I'll tell you. When you have the fruits of the Spirit in your life, you don't need the law. You have fulfilled the law. You are above reproach. I don't need a law telling me to not steal. I don't need a law that tells me not to fornicate. I don't need a law telling me not to covet my neighbor's ox or what he has. I don't need that law in my life because I'm submitted to God and how I submit to him is I know I'm getting there because I have joy in my life. I have love. I have peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. As we stand together, young man was in my office today, and he was being very irrational about a girlfriend. And I listened. I even listened to her on the phone as he talked to her. And he couldn't believe what she said. She said this. Get yourself right, and I'll consider taking you back. He just couldn't understand that because he's all changed now since he's been in recovery for a couple of days. And when the phone call was done, he put the phone down. And he said, I said, do you really want to know? He said, yes, I do. I said, she's not being unfair to you. And I quoted this. It's not a scripture, but Billy Sunday said, preach the gospel everywhere you go. And if necessary, use words. So in my life, I don't have to say a word about Jesus. I walk into every group I ever teach, and people will say a cuss word, and they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, Paul. I have never, nor will I ever censor anyone's speech in a room. There are a few words that I'll tell them, no, that doesn't belong here. But as far as their sailor mouths, I'm not here to judge their sailor mouths. I let they, they're themselves, and again, there are a few words I don't let them do. I've never said that, ever. Why do they do that? Today, uh, I had a group, and they told me why. Not to in answer to this question, but they told me the reason why. They said, Paul, you know what we love about your groups is that when we walk into your group, we feel peaceful. We feel calm around you. We feel at ease. We feel like you're not going to judge us. And so that's the righteousness of God in my life, that when they're in front of that, when they cuss, it's their own conscience that pricks their heart. It's not me. It's Christ that dwelleth in me. And I don't even respond. They, oh, I'm sorry, Paul, that I cussed. I don't respond to it. I just, if that's what you want to do, I'm here to let you be yourself. And so... We're getting ready to start uh, some more Bible studies.
And I'm so excited about that because it's when we plant the seed and the word of God in people's lives, then we're about our father's business. So seek ways that you can change or input people's lives and you're about your father's business. But make sure when you do it that you're peaceable and that you're gentle and that you're in love with God's kingdom. Yes, ma'am. Um, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. When we have the humility to ask, there's three parts of that. Ask, then seek. That's something you have to do. So you ask of God, you seek it out, uh, ask, seek, and then you shall find. So one part is God. The second part, the seeking, is you. So you put the effort behind it, you ask God, and you'll find it. And he will generally, in my experience in life, the way God has developed character in me is just the way a stone is smooth till it's shiny. It's in a brook, and it keeps bumping, and things keep grazing it off. And after a while, it gets smooth by the, the pressures, and the sandpaper of life makes me smooth. You wouldn't have liked me maybe 20 or 30 years ago. But rough things in life, my own mistakes and just life, has eased me and made me smoother and softer. And I still got a ton of stuff to work on. So don't, don't take me wrong. Uh, I still got st stuff to work on. But as you ask and you seek, it shall be opened unto you. And that's how we get to that place. I have found in my life that if you just try to do the next right thing, God will give you your ministry. Do the next right thing. Sometimes it's something he asked you months ago and maybe years ago. Go back to that and do the next right thing you're supposed to do. And then just take it day by day. That's all you have to do. Tomorrow, do the next right thing. Live for God the best you can tomorrow. and Don't worry about the next day. Just live for him the best you can tomorrow. If you goof up, if you goof up, ask him for forgiveness. Get up. The righteous fall the seven times, but when he falls, he shall arise. Get up. And you do what you're supposed to do. Could we lift our hands to the Lord and ask him, God, would you teach us? Would you mend us? Would you mold us? Would you make us in your image? Help us be saved. Help us be ready for the second coming. The rapture of the church. Help us be ready for your kingdom. Help us be gentle, wise. Help us to be servants of the Most High.